Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. The National Archives in the UK are now phenomenal. I mean, they are, they, you know, you almost start taking it for granted. Don't this TSR2. As, uh, I did it once, I got away with it. <laughs> well, I didn't actually, I got hate mail. What? is the point of a publisher and the guy just came back and says well publishers have saved the world from millions and millions of crap books Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. We return to the round table format for this episode and have a stellar lineup of aviation historians with me today. First off, we have Mick Oakey. Of course, he's a familiar voice to many of you, and he is the managing editor at The Aviation Historian. Mick was the editor at Aeroplane Magazine for 28 years and is a member of the Royal Aeronautical Society's Historical Group Committee. We also have Robert Forsyth, who is an author, editor and publisher, and of course, he specialises in historic military aviation set up his own publishing company and has since then gone on to write many more than 30 titles on the aircraft campaigns and units of the Luftwaffe. You can, of course, hear Robert on Extended on episode 126, the Luftwaffe's Special Weapons, 129, our Coastal Command series, and episode 160 for his fabulous book, The Stalingrad Airlift. And finally, we've got Chris Gibson, who sits on the committee of the Royal Aeronautical Society's Heritage Specialist Group and is on the editorial committee of the Aviation Historian as well, for whom he also writes. He researches, writes, illustrates, produces and publishes aviation books for Cressy, Key Publishing and his own company, Blue Envoy Press. He's the former editor of Air Britain Aero Militaria and specialises in Cold War military aviation and guided weapons. The interesting fact about Chris is he's currently on a drilling rig 100 miles east of Aberdeen. So, uh, gentlemen, welcome to Extended. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you uh, with us today. Let's kick off the debate. Mick, let me come to you first. What, what's What's relevant in aviation history at the moment? Big topics, talking points? Um, I think inevitably, well, World War II is always perennially popular, always has been, always will be. Stick a swastika on a book and it'll sell better than anything else. Stick a Spitfire on a magazine cover and it'll sell better than anything else through the news trade. We find that slightly boring on the aviation historian because we like to pursue the less trodden paths. Um, I think there's a lot of interest uh, these days in the Cold War and in 
more recent conflicts. And I think that's largely a function of the people who are still surviving. When I joined Aeroplane in 1983, there were a lot of people sending in their World War II reminiscences because they'd finished their post-war careers and had time to write their memoirs. We even still had a few World War I veterans writing for Aeroplane in the early 80s. By the way, I wasn't editor of Aeroplane for 28 years, only the final 12 years of that 28. Um, so, of course, the World War I generation is gone. World War II generation pretty much gone. So now we're looking at people from the Cold War era, things like the Falklands, and even more recent conflicts. So inevitably, the the ability to speak to veterans, talking of military stuff, particularly, is is key to, to the popularity of certain subjects. And Robert, um, I have to be uh, totally honest with you, probably up until 10 years ago, i didn't really see much specialist material on things like the Luftwaffe in the in in the Second World War. Um, seems to have really picked up um, interest. A bit of a challenge um, to you um, because it is coming from a bit of prejudice from my view. Um, do we often have a bit of a bias when we read um, historical aviation, uh, and particularly about the Luftwaffe? <coughs> Well, I, I mean, largely, uh, I'd echo what, what Mick has just said. Um, I think there probably is a bias, and I think that's driven uh, primarily by demand. It's, it's like a market, and, and publishers are there theoretically to, to, to satisfy the demand, you know, people's tastes. Um, I think what has happened is, uh, so, I mean, I, mean, I make a living and, and somehow managed to do so for the last few years, uh, you know, on, on the back of aviation publishing, specifically the Luftwaffe. And as, as Mick said, uh, you know, the, um, the, the sort of sad reality, I suppose, if you put a swastika on something, it does tend to sell. And as, as a, as a very well known publisher said to me, um, several years ago, um, Adolf Hitler sells more books than Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I think that is a truism. Um, probably. Um, I, th- I think what has happened, however, is yes, the Luftwaffe has sold. And, and, and as, as Mick said about Spitfires, you put spit, Spitfire on the front of a magazine and it sells. I think with my little niche, my little harbour, I think what's happened is that, um, weirdly, there's a taste for ever increasing specialisation. You know, people have just, you know, they, they, they know what a 109 looks like. They know what a Heimkel 111 looks like. And, you know, they, they know who the big aces were and all the rest of it. So I think what happens now is people want to drill down even further. You know, they want books about specific variants or they want books about aircraft that barely got off the ground and flew. Now that's fine. But it's got to work commercially. And this is where you have this juxtaposition between um, commercial necessities. You know, you have to print so many books to, to, to make a print run work. And really, if I mean, I mean, we've done a couple of very eclectic and quite specialist books recently on the Dornier, very good books, excellent books, but on the, for example, on the Dornier 215. Now that was one of Germany's most exported aircraft, but actually, you know, where does it sit alongside the 109 or the 190 or, you know, an aircraft like that? Um, and similarly, the Ju two eight seven, you know, forward swept wing jet bomber, you know, and and that book is now out, astonishingly out of print. But it took quite a few years to get to that point. So, and and there is this, as I say, this 
tendency for for the audience now, the market and and readers to want, and I can understand it because the world is awash with books about the 109. Uh, I'm sorry to pick on the 109, but just for the sake of this conversation, the world is awash yeah. with those books. And 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 so, where does the publisher go? Where does you know to satisfy all tastes? It's an increasing challenge. Um, and the other thing I would just say is that. Um, certainly from where I sit, technology is the driver. People want books about technology, not so much biography or, uh, memoirs as, you know, as, and, and that's getting harder because there's a mix of the veterans aren't there. But yeah, but it's really technical books that people want now. And Chris, let me come to you then. Um, the Cold War, certainly on extended is a very, very popular topic. Whenever we do anything on the uh, the Cold War, particularly the Jets, um, we're pretty much guaranteed to have a good response to that. Um, what's really relevant then in your area, area of expertise in the Cold War? Is there anything particular that's really pressing that people have an interest or is it just re- reminiscing about the old days? I'm, I'm not a great fan of the pilot memoir, as Mick probably knows. Uh, I prefer the hardware, uh, the, the bits and pieces, how they work. Robert's talking about technology. I like the technology. It fascinates me. I like ramjets, amazing pieces of kit. But nobody knows what they do and how they work. Yeah. Uh, as another uh, response to Robert putting a Messerschmitt on the front page or a Spitfire on the front page or front cover of a book, put TSR2 on the front page of a magazine, it'll sell out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, like, I like putting a TSR2 on the front of my books, as uh, Mick knows. But uh, I'm at a loss to understand the fascination with TSR2. I, f- I think there are far more interesting British projects that were on the go at the same time and I try to give them a bit of exposure and like I've got a piece coming up on the jumping jeep in the aviation historian and I think everybody starts off with what a stupid idea (laughs) but when you actually get into the documents in the archives you think it's actually not a stupid idea if you'd been in the bocage in 1944 You've got a 10-foot head you want to look over. You want a jumping jeep. And that's where it came from. But so stuff like that. And at the moment, I'm researching a lot on the Falklands War, which which is actually becoming fascinating. There's some amazing files in queue on that, and I just love digging through them. Now, um, we had um, some guidance, should we say, for this for this episode and the national archives came up for some discussion in that and the the point that was um that was made is um is was there bias written into historical records ergo when you do your research you reinforcing the bias and the prejudices uh, that were originally wrote into some of those records um how how do you feel about that then, Chris, in terms of the research you do, the content that you're researching against? How how do we validate that sort of thing to ensure that it's neutral? I, I basically state what I see in the files. 
and if someone, in someone's opinion, that file is biased, they'll always think it's biased. But if you just say this Under Secretary of State for Air said this, and you quote him, there's, there's no argument with that. Yeah. For example, the uh, I think it's one Vice Chief of the Air Staff when they were coming up with an air defence system for the UK, they uh, they proposed a missile with a 250 mile range. And he just turned around and said, we're not defending the bloody French. And that was it. <laughs> that was the end of that project. <clears throat> so that's not bias. That's just stating the facts. Okay. So how do you then, um, because you all write really fascinating and engaging stuff, how do you make it mean more than just a quote? How do you engage the reader i mean i know you all have individual styles for writing but how do you then take that statement and make it something that engages the readers well i find that if you have a quote you, there's always a, a preamble and a postamble if you like to these quotes and and there's always a story behind the quote. It could be a, a chain of letters between two guys that goes back months, years even, until you get to the meat of the subject. And you, I, I think you have to go through all those letters. And that's what I endeavour to do. Um, yeah, sorry, Mick. I was, I was going to uh, come back to you then on that. How, how deep do you need to go? How do you, when do you know enough's enough and you stop digging? Because every single... Um, aviation historian author historical author i speak to says and there's so much more <laughs> exactly there is always so much more um yeah speaking more as an editor because i'm unlike these other guys unlike robert and chris i'm not a historian i'm an editor uh, i don't write history i i process other people's writings on history um, but generally, uh, from my point of view as a journalist, uh, journalist, editor and publisher, you stop digging when the deadline is looming over you to deliver the <laughs> yeah, material. Um, otherwise, you could go on forever. When I was uh, uh, editing Aeroplane, we, I invented, to my credit, a rather wonderful section called Database, which was an in-depth look, each issue at a particular aircraft type. And we'd get specialist writers from all around the world to do these database sections, which might be nine, 10,000 words across maybe five or six articles. And um, famously, we had a number of German authors writing databases for us on the JU-88, the Messerschmitt-Momono, all sorts of German types, and they barely ever finished them. We always said, is, is that coming up pretty soon now, Joachim or... Gerhard, whatever their names are, they would say, I, I need another six months. And it never happened. So we ended up, well, right back in the day, getting people like Alfred Price to write our Luftwaffe databases for us. Um, so, the, yeah, the short answer is you can dig as deep as you want and as, lo uh, as long as you've got the time to do so. And the deeper you dig quite often the more fascinating stuff you find there's no end to it okay um robert um mick just mentioned um germany there you write an awful lot about german aircraft um how much gets lost in translation <laughs> um 
Well, I, I taught, I, I did study German at school to O level and, and I left it. And then, and then I left school and, you know, I discovered beer and girls and rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. So I sort of abandoned it, but that kind of gave me the basics. And, um, and when I, 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 there was no shortcut, um, to be honest, Peter, it was just, I just managed to somehow over the years cobble a bit of schoolboy German and then join, join that up with a bit of, you know, self-taught. I, I can read German better than I can speak it. You know, if I was parachuted in, into Germany tomorrow, I could probably just about get by on schoolboy German. But I, my, my re- read, read, reading German is much better. And I've, gra- I've managed to over the years grasp a knowledge of technical and military German. And I think most of the guys that I know who I, write well not write with but who i have the privilege of publishing and who i count as friends who are not german have done the same thing they've gone down that path you just teach yourself and 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 your your learning is driven by your passion for the subject i would if you peter if you allow me just there's a few interesting points come from this Uh, a moment ago um chris was saying uh, you were sorry you're talking about bias uh, uh, and you asked chris and one thing that for example, one thing came out of Germany in the 1950s was a scheme that was funded and promoted by the United States Air Force, where they took a lot of former German generals. This was after, I mean, it was in the 50s, so hostilities had well and truly ceased. And they commissioned these German generals, former generals, to write studies of the Luftwaffe. And I've been revisiting these. And, and, and in the sort of 70s and 80s, they got a little bit, they got kind of swept away in the sort of tide of new research. And, and they were a really wide ranging and, and big study. And I've been using them for various reasons recently. And you do, of course, get the bias. And the bias comes in the fact that a lot of these guys wanted to whitewash their careers. You know, they, you know, don't mention the war and all the nasty bits of the war and all the rest of it. And, and sure, there was a bit of probably some self-serve, self-serving stuff going on. But actually, in, you know, sitting in the, you know, here we are in 2023. If you look at it objectively, those studies are really, really useful. And by and large, they're not biased. They're just, you know, that it is a very German, they were very straight. They were written very directly. And so they have value. And you just have to, if you see bias or you sense bias, you just got to say to yourself, look, is the reader going to be sensible enough to recognize this and understand it? Or have I got to alter it? And I don't like altering it too much. I like to, as Chris was saying, I like to actually just, if I'm going to use a quote, quote it, because that's where, it, that's, that's what the guy's saying. I, I don't like doctoring stuff. Um, also in terms of style, I think it's very important. What I try and do in most of my books is to sort of tell the story from the general down to the foxhole, you know, the bloke in the foxhole. It's, I, 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 I you know, there are people who write very, very good strategic overviews of, battles and air campaigns and there are people who write pilot memoirs and i like to try and i'm a bit of a magpie when it comes to that um mixed point about german writers yes i know that you know you steal their babies from their hands (laughs) you know and also one last thing is when do you stop as a writer i don't know how chris feels about this but as a writer it's hard to stop sometimes because you just want to tell that given that one little extra factoid that you've got and when i finally hang up my boots i i 
uh, there's a project or two projects that I want to do, which no one's going to stop me on. And I'm just going to keep going. And, and it'll pro- I'll probably only sell it to, you know, one man and his dog. But that brings us on to another subject, which we'll maybe touch on, which is self-publishing. Um, and that has, that has changed things dramatically. The landscape has changed dramatically because of that. So, yeah. How, how, how Robert, does that, um, does that change things? Is that just in the, in the process of bringing a book to fruition? Yeah. Does it change anything in the research you do or in the depth you'll go to or in um, the type of book you want to write? Th- th- there are, there are books, there are, there are projects which, uh, and I'm sure I'd be interested to hear what Chris says, but there are projects that I know a publisher wouldn't touch. And there are authors that come to me occasionally with ideas and you just have to politely show them the door, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, self-publishing does open up lower print runs, um, books that may not otherwise get published. Um, and, again, I went, you know, to put that into context, I, there was a very – I went to a London book fair a few years ago and there was a symposium I went to and – you know, the question was thrown to a, a big sort of London publisher talking head. What is the point of a publisher? Which was a big question. And the guy just came back and says, well, publishers have saved the world from millions and millions of crap books. And that's a, that's a hard attitude, but in a, in a, in a sense, it's kind of right. Um, and, um, but publishing, self-publishing now changes that. And, um, <laughs> the door is open for anything you want to do so it gives it gives it gives people freedom but but you need an editor because otherwise you do get crap books yeah so chris i'm coming to you then i don't know if if robert's thrown you under the bus then or uh, given <laughs> no, you an I opportunity actually, to tell us some it, of these crazy book ideas oh i've got loads of crazy book ideas but like he says publishers have saved the world from them but speaking of self-publishing uh if you're uh if you're aware of an author called Dave Forster, specialises in uh, Cold War electronic reconnaissance in Canberra, he self-published a book on sniffers, radioactive clouds, etc. I saw that and I mentioned it to a publisher I know and he went, hmm, do you think he could do something else on that? And he ended up writing Black Box Canberra's and uh, listening in for Cressy. Two very good books, mm. and uh, that started from a self-published pamphlet, really. Mm. So I think Robert's got a very valid point. Um, let's talk about research then, because I'm in- intrigued to, to how you folks go about some of this research. We get this lovely, hopefully big, thick, heavy book. I am still in the old school and I can see Mick has got his behind him. I'm I'm in that place at the moment. I keep dipping into ebooks, but I'm I'm struggling a bit. Um, tell us the, pro- the processes you go through. Where will you look for um, your, your content? How, how does that trail start? Do you get an idea? Does someone feed you a nugget and you're off on a journey? You know, how long is it? How deep is it? Um, oddly enough, most of my books began from one sentence in someone else's book. Um, I think the very first one was Tony Butler mentioned something about an AEW version of a Vickers Interceptor. So I just started looking for AEW stuff and eventually ended up with books and books on AEW. 
And it's as simple as that. One sentence, off I went. Three books. And is it is it driven by your passion for the topic or do you some do you write for an audience because you know there's a passion out there for that? How does that work? Uh, pretty much write for me. That's that's the thing. It's, it's curiosity only kills cats. So the more you research something, the more you know about it. And eventually it comes to a point where you think other people might be interested in this. And you'll be talking to somebody, well, say Tony Butler, talking to him in the pub, and he'll say, why don't you write a book about that? And you go, okay, I'll try it. <laughs> that's, that's how they start, conversation yeah. in the pub. What sort of challenges then, I'll put this to the whole group, what sort of challenges do you have writing um, historical aviation accounts? What are the sorts of things that you feel you can trip over sometimes? Hmm. I would say one of them, <clears throat> one of them is uh, TSR2. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big thing to trip over. Yes, don't this TSR2. Uh, I did it once. I got away with it. <laughs> well, I didn't, actually. I got hate mail. <laughs> but, yeah, there are some pet subjects that people hold very close to their hearts, and I'm, I'm at a loss to understand the passion, but then I wouldn't understand the passion for something like that. So Right. Are there any are there any areas for you, Robert? That... I think well, I was going to say I'm sure Mick's, Mick's come up against this as well. Um, uh, you have to be well. I, I found yeah, you, you have to be a diplomat sometimes. As I, 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 I wear one or two different hats, but with an editorial hat on, you know, you get given um, a piece of work, and it's a very good piece of work, and someone's put their heart and soul into it, possibly spent years on it. But you know, it, it, it's to use an analogy. It's like a you're like a sculpture sculptor. You, you have this great boulder, the lump of rock that comes in, which is really good rock, you know, and it's solid. And but you have to carve it. And um, you know, I have there have been one or two occasions, happily only very few, but where I've had to, you know, not come to blows with an author, but you really have to sort of. There's a process. You you have to be a dip. You have to be a firm diplomat and say, look, you know, if you leave it like this, it's not going to work. Or I'm changing it because it's you know it's just got to be changed. Um, people are people are very. I found I don't, again, Mick. I don't know how you found this, but I find authors generally. If you say, hang on, that's wrong. It should. Be, I think you said a mark A, but you mean a mark B. People generally will accept. Oh yeah, sorry, I, I got that wrong. Um, you get a little bit of indignance, but if you criticize someone's, and I'm I'm sorry, you shouldn't criticize someone, but if you, you have to do it, you have to, you have to take someone's work and amend it to a better, you know, raise it. That is where I find, I find that difficult sometimes, not the actually doing it, but actually working with an author and it can be quite hard. You have to tread very carefully. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran from Plain Crazy Down Under. And you're listening to Extended. Uh, yeah, you do have to tread carefully. Um, there are uh, 
plenty of authors who produce a good example would be Chris, a good example would be you, Robert, who just present beautifully packaged material. I'm talking about a magazine context here, like the Aviation Historian and Aeroplane, where all the pictures are in place. It needs a very light edit. And we've always, all the through my whatever it is, 40-year career in aviation history journalism, I've always much preferred to edit with the lightest possible touch mm. so that an individual author's style shines through rather than taking the Reader's Digest approach of reducing everything to a very hom- homogenous house style. Absolutely. Much prefer to have all these disparate voices all packaged together in one magazine. Um, and it's interesting to look back on particularly the earlier days of my interactions with authors and hallowed people like the the great uh, test pilot and record setting pilot Alex Henshaw who wrote the most amazing reminiscences of all the astonishing things he did but even though he was a test pilot and used to coming up with with concise reports and so on um he found it very difficult to string an article together in a logical sequence. And in the days before computers, when he would send us a TypeScript manuscript, I remember cutting it up into almost individual sentences and reordering them and sticking them back down again before sub-editing it. It was no bad reflection on Alex. It's just the way he was. But certain people's brains operate in in different ways and similarly um the great uh, Roland Beaumont B Beaumont who uh was a lovely chap but had a reputation as a bit of a bully um i used to spend hours on the phone to him arguing about punctuation for the articles that he wrote in aeroplane um he <laughs> always wanted to take punctuation out and i said the readers need to breathe you've got to have the odd comma or semicolon or full stop up in there um, and he always we we go through galley proofs the you know the long printed proof of the text before you did the paste up layout we go through galley proofs and i take his corrections and argue about points with him and um it, he would argue about every last full stop and in the end after about a year of this working with uh, with B, I realized the best policy was to put in twice as much punctuation as was actually needed uh, so that he reduced it by half and we ended up with about the right amount. <laughs> I remember that Great. one, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Um, let me then ask, I suppose, a $64,000 question. Um, and this is something that, that that's really uh, – I feel quite strongly about in the last, I don't know, maybe decade or so, um, I get a fab- fabulous opportunity to talk to folks like you. And sometimes we have a discussion offline and we have a chat about things. But are historians looking at aviation through modern day goggles? Are we losing the context of events in their day? How, how, how do you feel about that? Because there's always a debate about this and, you know, you post something on a, on a book club and somebody has a view and somebody else has a view and you think, oh, that's a fair point, actually. Maybe we shouldn't be looking at it that way because, you know, let's take the Second World War. There were X number of theatres. So looking at one small incident in isolation doesn't give the context of what that individual may have seen going on elsewhere. How do we how do we feel about that as 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 uh, aviation historians? 
Um, well, all I'd say is, uh, as the point made earlier, we've lost veterans. Uh, I mean, talking about Second World War, <clears throat> excuse me, we've up to the Second World War at least, We've and, you know, heading into Suez and Korea and things like that. I mean, <clears throat> and sadly, they're fading away. So um, although some would argue that you don't always get an objective view from veterans, so maybe you have to go to more than one veteran. But I think one thing that worries me a little bit is the – it's a double-edged sword, the rise of the internet and readily available online information, which increasingly people yeah. tend to take as, um, you know, as, as gospel. Um, and um, I think that may taint the way we look at things and approach things. I think people of our, <clears throat> I think I'm all right here, of our generation, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we are a little bit old school and, um, you know, maybe we, become slightly longer the tooth and a bit dinosaur like but we approach it in a certain way and i think we knew what it was like pre-internet um but 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 i think the internet does does has been a a source for good and bad i'm afraid i think in that respect and does that should we be worried about future generations not having the insight that flattering myself but we may have because of the experiences we've had and because of the the opportunity we've had to speak to some of those veterans and that goes um i you know i've got a 12 year old daughter she googles everything and she thinks that's the way the world is now whether i like that or not is irrelevant mm. actually because i'll be gone in however many years or decades hopefully um mm. and that's what they'll do or whatever comes next I, do we fear for future generations on understanding um history in the way it should be uh, interpreted i don't think so uh, my, my brother once my brother's a teacher and he once said that uh, if kids are picking up stuff on their phones on the internet that shows they're reading and it might just lead read them into reading books and if we're writing the books they might just pick them up so mm, well, yeah. i think it's a good thing yeah. Mm. What I do worry about is uh, historians with agendas. I, I try to be as objective as possible, just the facts, as Columbo would say. Yeah. And that's what I aim for. Okay. Mick? Yeah, I think, echoing what Chris said, I don't think we need to worry too much. I think every generation interprets history in its own way and you know there's the there's the shoulders of giants thing that uh, we're always trying to move history forward it's very much what we try and do with the aviation historian we deliberately don't rehash the same old stories we try and come up with a new angle on something a, a good example would be chris's recent work on the, the falklands war where an amazing discovery at the national archives in a rather anodyne looking uh report on refueling revealed some extraordinary long the longest ever long distance bombing raid plans including bombing the falklands and flying back the long way over the pacific and via the usa and canada as extraordinary stuff yeah, it was. um and and also the lovely thing about that was i think i can't remember if it was that article i think it was which resulted in contact with uh, an argentinian 
researcher Mariano Schironi, who was then in subsequent articles able to present the Argentine perspective. So we did one double header piece where Chris was looking at the RAF, the British perspective. Mariano was looking at the same thing from the Argentinian perspective. And we haven't really seen that sort of stuff before. It's fantastically fruitful. My one regret about that article is that I'd read it so many times. I wish I could I could have read it for the first time. But I remember finding the 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 papers in the file and just thought, what is this doing in here? And that's what I love about going to the archives. You find stuff that you just why is this here and why has it not been weeded out? Oh, there is something here. This is very good. I'm using this. That's what I love about digging in the archives. Yeah, I, I've, I've shared your experience, Chris, and it's a great moment when you get a file that's, um, you know, about A, and then buried in there is X. And uh, it, it, it happens rarely, but when it does, oh, boy. <laughs> And um, Robert, just taking that further, I think we've talked about one of those um, one of those discussions you had that opened up some doors to 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 other areas. Um, how much more challenging is it to write on a topic like the Luftwaffe when there's not really a national archives there to do that with? Well, 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 there, well there is. Um, the, in Germany, there's the Bundesarchiv in Freiburg, um, uh, and I have to say, uh, as a user, I, I, I feel very – I mean, I started using the UK National Archives when it was still the dear old public record office. And, you know, there were these guys in brown brown, brown sort of coats that used to have – and everything was photo you – you wanted a photocopy, you had to queue and, you know, all the rest of it. But um, I think that generally – I don't know what you would say, Chris, but the National Archives in the UK – are now phenomenal. I mean, they are, they, you know, you almost start taking it for granted, the accessibility, the speed which documents get delivered and all the rest of it. If you go to the Bundesarchiv at, um, in Freiburg, for example, they are only, I would say there's still a long way to catch up in the digitization process compared to say the UK National Archives at Kew. I can't comment on Washington. I've, I've, I've been there, but I, many, many years ago. Um, so, um, yeah, I, 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 I think, I think the UK archive is great. The Bundesarchiv, I mean, there's other archives in Berlin and, um, and, and what have you. And generally, actually, the Germans, German archives, they're, they are open. Um, they have strict guidelines. They're not as free quite as the British National Archives. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, the information is there if you want it. I would, I would say that the, all of the British archives are superb. The, the volunteers that work in them are just brilliant. Couldn't be more helpful. Mm. I did have a, a strange experience with one of the big aerospace companies. Not that one, but, uh, <laughs> I, I, I called the guy, their archivist, and asked him about a, a project that, I had found in queue and asked for more information on it. And he says, oh, uh, I can't possibly give you any information on that. I says, oh, why is that? He says, well, we didn't win the contract, so that'd be very embarrassing. That was it. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> <laughs> but Mate, by and large, they're all good. 
Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree up to a point. I think, um, things like the, the National Archives are brilliant. Places like the, uh, Farnborough Air Sciences Trust Museum, the Fast Museum at Farnborough is amazing. I know, uh, Chris yeah. was reportedly cock a hoop at some material he discovered there when he was down there with, uh, Nick Stroud, our editor the other week. Um, that's absolutely fantastic. On the, the sort of slightly negative side of the coin, I learned from Nick Stroud today that, um, our um, star graphic artist, Ian Bott, who's also on our editorial board, can't get into the reading room at the RAF Museum at Hendon until mid-October to research mm. the next in, the, in our series on uh, British aerial weapons. And that's, you know, that's, that's a long time. And I know Nick also has a real beef with the general uselessness of the Imperial War Museum's website when it comes to picture research. Just, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the other thing that this brings me on to also is digitization. And we talked about younger generations and how do they view history. One of the things younger generations seem to believe is that you can find anything you want on the internet and everything's been digitized and it has not. No way. And I can't realistically, even with artificial intelligence, I can't really see any way that everything will ever be digitized and available online. Which, which in a sense, and, and, and also what happens there, Mick, is that um, I found, I don't know if you found this, Chris, but I found when I've gone to, uh, yeah, the National Archives a few years ago, our, our British National Archives, and also with, particularly with the Bundesarchiv in Germany, is that if you go saying, uh, if you if you look in a file on the Falklands or, you know, I don't know, something, and, and, and you, you say, well, this is good, I want a copy of this. And that triggers, oh, a man has been in wanting this file. So we better then digitize it for wider use. So, um, surely eventually if, and, and as Mick said, that then becomes available to what, and that becomes the accepted form of history. But what may, what I hope won't happen is that that is the only way that people will start to look for information because going into an archive, the very process of going into an archive, may people may stop doing that and and they'll just look online and that just grows and grows and grows and but it requires the people the foot soldiers if you like to go in and find the dusty files that prompts i mean i i was doing some research in the in the bundesarchiv um uh back about 2012 2013 and i found some files and also i went to the bundesarchiv in Koblenz and found some photographs they ended up being in, online as part of their digital, their digitization process. Now I know, had I not done that, that would never have happened. Well, it, 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 look, the next guy in the door may have done it, but I, I don't think it would have happened quickly, at least because I was looking at something quite specialist. But that is up online now, and I know that material has been used, which is a good thing. But my point is, it took me going in there to do it. So if younger generations are only relying on that means to get information then their horizons are narrowed. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, let's talk about um, images then, because that's a, uh, that's come up a few times. Um, we well know that unless we put a sexy image out with an episode, it'll have less attraction than our regular listeners just picking it up and, uh, and downloading it. Um, book covers are very visual um, and can be an appetite or a turnoff 
to to some readers. How powerful are the use of images in the work that you do? Um, I think they are, uh, from again, from a magazine context, uh, less so from a book context, but from a magazine context, they're tremendously powerful. They are most powerful for magazines which are sell- sold in the news trade, in WH Smith's and things like that, where a cover image has but the, the, the research that we used to do in IPC media when I edited Aeroplane. The research said you had four seconds from somebody first spotting your front cover on the shelf to deciding whether or not they were going to pick it up and therefore whether or not they were going to buy it. So an arresting cover image for a magazine was very important. And it also meant that magazines in at that time and still today have to be the cover has to be festooned with cover lines. They, our publishers wanted us to basically put a note about the entire contents on the front cover in the hope that it would generate some interest. With the aviation historian, we don't have cover lines or we have one because we don't sell through the news trade. So we don't have to worry about that. And then we can use our images to, to really tell the story. Going back to what Chris was saying earlier, uh, our current issue, TAH44, has got TSR2 on the cover. <laughs> a fairly well-worn image, but nevertheless. <laughs> but it was for a good reason, because we were looking at the political background, one of Professor Keith Hayward's articles about the political background to the British aviation industry. So certainly for magazines, covers are, uh, images are important, not just for front covers, but for opening spreads throughout a feature. You just, you want to open it and see images. You think, wow, that's amazing. I've never seen that before. One of my pet hates is photographs in books and magazines with very short anodyne uh, captions. <laughs> I like a long <laughs> caption. I, I pretty much present two books, one based on the photographs, another one based on the text within one book. And there's, as I always tell authors, somebody took that photograph for a reason. You have to find the reason for that photograph being taken and why what's going on in that photograph. If you look in a lot of my books, there's a lot going on in the background, and uh, I try to describe it. Like in War Prizes, which uh, I did along with uh, Phil Butler, lots of photographs of captured German aircraft, and lots of people like squaddies standing guard on them, and they're just amazing photographs. But in the original, I didn't think the captions were as good as it could have been. Mm. So I expanded a bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with you entirely. And it's like when you get a picture of a a lovely um, works photo or a, a factory photo. It's a, particularly in you know in World War Two German stuff. You know, you get a lovely works photo and the stuff that's going on in the background. Yeah. You know, in factories, and you notice what's that little thing that you know the, the prototype in the corner of the workshop or something. But yeah, some authors are better than others at that. And the other thing is, sometimes you'll see something in the background, and you think, and you write a huge caption about it, and the layout chart will cut them off. <laughs> yeah. you have to say, Please restore that to the original size. <laughs> that happens not. 
Mick, you were going to make a point. Then. Yeah, the the best journalistic or editor's rule for writing captions is that the caption should tell you something that you can't divine just by looking at the photograph. Mm. So it needs to be some background or some context, some extra thing. Even you know a picture of a particular aircraft. Don't just tell us what make mark it is what serial it is tell us what squadron it served with if it's not immediately apparent tell us what it did when it was built when it was struck off charge or crashed or whatever that extra information that you can't see just from looking at the picture right okay um we've mentioned digitization and the dreaded term ai has come up um in my day job i've been exposed to some of that and then it's frightened the living daylights out of me i have to be brutally honest um is there a threat to um to writing good books from ai in the future do we think not to writing good books. <laughs> Touche, yeah. Touche. Very good. Very good. Well, I, 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 I inevitably, uh, I suppose it's going to come, but um, I hope um, from my part, speaking as a dinosaur, I hope I'm on my horse and ridden out of town by then and I'll, I'll <laughs> I, 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 don't, I hope I don't have to, no, not my thing. <laughs> Chris, how about you? Yeah. Uh, I spend quite a bit of time on the Secret Projects Forum, which is run by Paul Martel Mead. Uh, a very good forum, actually. And recently, when AI first came up, uh, I banged in a post saying, what would AI make of a carrier-borne TSR-2 strike aircraft? Mm. And the results were hilarious. You used to see these. It's fantastic. So I don't think we've got much to worry about. Okay. So as as we start to edge towards um, wrapping this up, I have to put you all on the spot. I'm not going to ask you what exciting books you've got in the in the pipeline because that is a bit sensitive and commercially uh, sensitive so what i'd rather like to do is ask you for one of those publications or books you've had to turn down and and, and, and why let's start with you then mick let's put you on the spot first is there a top well or a book uh, yeah i can pick out I can I can probably largely dodge this question because as as managing <laughs> editor as managing editor of the aviation historian my role is interfering old git rather than the man who actually decides what goes in the the journal so Nick Stroud actually decides what goes in and he has a, a very good judgment on that uh, and we never see anything coming through that I read the proofs of and think why are we publishing this? Um, we, uh, we, we are lucky to be deluged with far more material than we can possibly publish in a short space of time. So our problem is always not what are we going to put in the issue. It's all that lovely stuff we've got to leave out. Um, and I think these things are a bit self-selecting. When uh, when Nick and I moved on from Aeroplane magazine, we took a number of our authors with us and we, shall we say, deliberately left some of our authors behind because their work was okay, but not outstanding. So uh, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of, oh, the only thing I can think of recently that I think we're in the process of turning down is a Vietnam conflict 
based uh, article where it seems that virtually all the material, uh, unbeknownst to us until a little while ago, has already been published online. And we're not in the business of repurposing material that's already out there. Yeah. Okay. So, Chris, have you had a a, a book or a, or something like that that you've just said no, not having? Yeah, I, I was asked to do a a book for a publisher familiar to Robert on the Hawker Typhoon, the original uh, World War Two one. And frankly, I don't know enough about them. I've, I, I'd, I'd be faking it because I yeah. really don't know enough. I'd rather write about something I know than spend a lot of time playing catch-up with somebody that would know the subject much better than me and could do it much better. So uh, Hawker Typhoon, well, pretty much everything World War Two, really. <laughs> and Robert, everything Luftwaffe seems to be exciting at the moment. Is there is there anything you've just said? No, that's that's just not going to happen because some of the stuff you've done is really, really different but exciting. You know, we we talked earlier about some of the episodes you've done with us. Fascinating stuff. Is it all that fascinating? Um. Well, I was going, I was going to say uh, I've t- I, I, I've been approached a few times over the years by you know my father or grandfather was a, a Lancaster tail gunner and there's nothing wrong with that but you just you know I've I've turned down I've had to turn down because commercially they're just not viable the old me- memoir here and there I mean there are there are publishers John Davis at Grub Street for example who seems to work magic when it comes to um, memoirs and, you know, he's been successful with his boys series, you know, uh, bulk, bulk and boys and, 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 uh, and, and that kind of thing. Um, I've not actually had to turn anything down. It would just be memoirs. Actually, I was going to mention ironically the reverse is that, um, the number of times people have emailed me, written to me, spoken to me and said, why don't you do a book on the 109 or books on the 109? <laughs> and and there's just you, – you just say, okay, go and write one. Yeah. And they look at you as if, you know, as if you've almost insulted them, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, publishers have said to me, you know, because, you know, I, I wear a packaging hat as well, a production hat, and publishers said to me, can't you do a book on the 109? Or this will find any – or it's got to the point now I, I, I wouldn't do it anyway. Because I think I wouldn't want the flack yeah. I, that would inevitably come. I'm just, you know, 20 years ago, I would have done it. Not now. Yeah. Not now. Well, I'm lucky enough to have my bookshelves festooned with lots of content from from, from this group. So uh, I, I, I'm happy to have this discussion with you. But what about the future? What's, what's coming after us lot um, when I pass my books on to my daughter who probably put them in the local car boot sale or something what, what where are the new writers coming from where's the new energy where's the youngsters um coming from and what can we do to give them a bit of advice about um future aviation histor- historical writing chris well while i've been doing blue envoy press which is the my own publishing company 
I've always aimed to give new authors a chance. Guys like uh, uh, Paul Martel Meadway's P1121 book, which sold out immediately, which was great. But uh, other guys like James Jackson, you, you must have heard of James through the Aviation Historian. He did a helicopter book for Blue Envoy Press, and on the back of that, he got a book on the post-1945 development of RAF trainers for Cressy, one of the Hikoki range. And since then, he's got another two titles for Cressy to do, which I, I, I'm really proud of James and what he's done. And, um, yeah. I'd, I'd like to take some of the credit. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, and he's a, a solid researcher and he's, he's an actual historian as well so okay. there's also uh, Mike Price as well but Mike's too busy to write but the stuff <laughs> he writes is good <laughs> but I'm sure there's lots more new writers out there that just need a, a leg up for somebody like me mm. that was a great thing about being the editor of uh, Aeromilitaria for Air Britain Guys would send me articles and they'd be great, they'd be huge, but in there you could produce them and run them over a series of articles over a year or year or two and yeah. you get some good stuff, but I don't think publishers would go for them. Like Robert was saying earlier, you have an awful lot of editing to do. <laughs> so I think there's guys out there that just need a chance. There is an old guard <clears throat> and uh, they need moved on. Not that moved on but you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mick how about you um, yeah I was there's one person I'd single out which is uh, it's a fellow member with me and Chris on the Royal Aeronautical Society's Aviation Heritage Group Committee Dr Victoria Taylor um, and as, as Nick Stroud describes her as a shining beacon amongst sort of modern new aviation historians, younger aviation historians. She recently wrote a paper about the Nazi Young Flyers Corps, which was published, uh, I think it's been published now, on the Journal of Aeronautical History, which is the Aero Society's um, online aviation history journal. Um, and Brilliant, a brilliant young historian, and I think we'll hear a lot more from her in the years to come. How about you, Robert? You must have what? some some under your wing. Okay, well that's weird, Mick, because um, I was approached to uh, review her article on that, and it was as you said, it was absolutely first class. It was outstanding. Um, and we, I don't think I'm letting any cats out of the bag, but I'm working on a new exciting publication that's going to be out sort of around Christmas, um, sort of compendium of Luftwaffe stuff. And we've, and I thought that that art, for example, here's, here's an article that was geared for a, um, a very, uh, high end academic, uh, very knowledgeable base. And I thought this is good enough to try and get to, you know, this, this should be seen by the Luftwaffe wider fraternity. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I, I contacted her and she was, you know, really, we, we, we got on very well. And happily that article is going to get a second wind, a second pass in, in, in this new thing that we're publishing with, with illustrations as well. Great. So that's great. My, 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 my guys, I think there have, I've got to say there haven't been too many, new arrivals actually writing. There's a difference between a lot of people who say they will write a book and actually they do it. 
But I would just say a few years ago, the pair of um, Andrew Arthur and Morton mm-hmm. Jessen, mm-hmm. uh, who I know have written for you, you mean yeah. as well, mm-hmm. um, they set up their own – well, they happily – I was very fortunate to be able to publish their book on the Focke Wolf 190 in North Africa, which was great. And they've gone on since to set up their own publishing business. And those guys really work hard. They do it the, the, the proper – they're young guys. They spend – weeks in the national archives when andrew comes over from australia and uh, those guys at airwall publications very very good very good i we could just go on i i haven't even got to uh historical fiction yet i'm sure that would rustle some 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 feathers <laughs> but uh, we're running we're running a bit low on time so maybe we could do this again sometime and uh pick up some some other topics but one final question to to all three of you before you go i can't let you go um without asking you what your favorite historical book is so who who wants to kick us off with favorite book either you've written or you've read ah <laughs> uh, they've all got <laughs> they're all wondering now how do you do that <laughs> as a tough one Okay, I've just pulled off the shelf a pocket encyclopedia of world aircraft in colour published by the Blandford Press in 1969. Chris, remember this? This got, this, this got me into it in 1969. It was such a great little book and I keep it close to hand. I mean, that's nostalgia, but it, yeah, that kind of, I think there's a book that influences you more than perhaps any other book at a point in your life. That and William Green's War Plains of the Third Reich, which my mother, bless her, never... I think I frightened my mother when I bought that, but there you go. <laughs> How about you, Mick? Uh, well, uh, I've got one that's slightly off the wall, and indeed I've just picked it off the wall or I'd off expect, the shelf. I'd expect it to be. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Echoes from Dawn Skies, which um, was a series of reminiscences of pre-World War One aviation mainly, gathered together by uh, a chap called Frederick Warren Merriam, who was a very eminent uh, flying instructor in the years before and during World War One. And the reason this is my favourite is because it was a lost manuscript. And uh, back in 2013, I think it was, I had a phone call out of the blue from a lady who said, um, I've got this manuscript written by my grandfather, F. Warren Merriam, at which point I knew of Merriam, so I fell off my chair. Um, and it's never been published, and I wonder if you'd be interested. And it's he gathered together, got in touch with all his old flying chums, some of whom ended up like Lord Trenchard, head of the Royal Air, founder of the Royal Air Force, lots of luminaries. Um, would you be interested in, in publishing it or serialising it in the Aviation Historian? And, of course, I said yes, and I said, you know, where are you? Um, she's two, She lives two villages away from me in West Sussex. Wow. So wow. I immediately bombed over there we published a whole series of chapters in the aviation historian and ultimately with pen and sword we co-published the whole thing and it's the beauty of this book because they were reminiscences written to warren merriam by his old flying chums it's like people chatting in a pub and you just it encapsulates that pre-World War One period when people knew the dangers and they just went and did it anyway. Amazing yeah, stuff. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Chris, can I top that? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> listeners of a certain age will 
possibly, certainly in Britain, if they're listening to this podcast, they might be aware of a magazine called Speed and Power. Ah, Mick's nodding. <laughs> this used to come out weekly, and it had all these amazing machines in it. And one issue had a XP70 Valkyrie, and I was smitten. And a few issues later, it had Britain's XP70, the TSR2. That <laughs> <laughs> um, was it. That was, was just started thinking is, is, air, is, aircraft. It, Funny how often the TSR2 has come up today. Listen, <laughs> oh, yeah, folks, um, we've, we've probably run to time now. So um, let me ask you where we can find you online, Mick. Let me come to you first. Right. You can find us online at www.theaviationhistorian.com, also on Facebook and on Twitter or X or whatever it is called this week. <laughs> Robert, yeah. how about you? Well, I, I only have a Facebook fa- a page, I'm afraid, um, but all my books are, uh, you know, standard online retail outlets and on the, the big online seller, I have an author page as well, which is quite detailed. So that's it. Okay. And finally, Chris. Uh, well, generally, most often you'll find me on the Secret Projects Forum, uh, CJ Gibson. That's me on there. Uh, I've got a Facebook page for Blue Envoy Press, and uh, I quite rarely contribute to uh, Simon Jakubowski's Aviation His- oh, Enthusiast yeah. Book Club. So right, I, okay. I don't have a presence as such. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much, folks. Really enjoyed that. Really, really enjoyed that. We'll do it again sometime. But that's it. We'd like to thank White Hearts as well as the extended family of supporters. Of course, we have Mick with us today. So thank you, Mick, for supporting the program. And there you go to Simon Jakubowski at the Aviation Enthusiast Book Club as well. Uh, We're keen to hear your reviews. Uh, Leave us one on your podcast playing app or on social media somewhere. But, of course, if you've got a view about this program, some of the points we've discussed, throw it at us. If you can't get hold of um, Mick, Robert, or, or Chris, I'll pass those messages on for you. You can find me at Nascot Hornet on Twitter, and you can find Tim, Gareth, and Ellie on the extended Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other feeds as well. That's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Mick. Robert and Chris. Cheerio. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program and leave us feedback on our facebook page we'd love to hear from you 
If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com Extend it! This is XTP Media.